Genesis chapter 2, let's just dive right into the text. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. On the seventh day of creation, something totally unique and rather interesting occurs. First, after seeing everything that God had made and determining we saw this in chapter 1, verse 31, that it was very good. On the seventh day, we're told God ended his work and rested. In the Hebrew, ended, this word ended, it means that his work was literally accomplished, completed. We're told that the heavens and the earth and the hosts of all of them were finished, which then explains why God found it necessary at that point forward to rest, that God then rested. And note, this word rested. It doesn't present the idea or imply that God was exhausted. You know, that the sixth day of creation was so taxing that God was like, man, just time out. I just need to take a break, a little R&R, a little rest. No. Instead, this word, it implies, it indicates, literally, the cessation of what was happening before. And the Hebrew rested is an interesting word. It's the word Shabbat, which is the primitive root of the Hebrew word Sabbat, which we get translated into English as Sabbath. So if you want to know where the Sabbath is, here tucked into these particular verses, it's in the word rested. So, why is it that God would end his work and cease creating? Have you thought about that? To me, that's kind of a, a, a complex, um, interesting question. Here you are, you're the God of the universe, and you've created all of these things. You're filled with, with just an immense amount of creativity and imagination. There's no limitation to the work that you can do. I mean, consider for just a moment, why is it that at this point, the seventh day, God's like, you know what, I'm done. Like, had he run out of creative ideas? I mean, was he just tapped? Or could it be that the purpose of his creation, what had spawned all of this creativity, had finally been reached? Obviously, the answer lies in the latter. Because the climax of and the ultimate purpose behind all that God had created was achieved. At the very end of the sixth day, when God created man, God could now rest from his work. And what this means is that this seventh day and the word seven in biblical numerology means completion. This seventh day signified the consumption of creation, operating as it was designed, with mankind enjoying at the center of creation an open and free and intimate relationship with his creator. God's work ceased because God's work was finished. The whole point of God's work had come to a completion. And note, we'll get to this in a minute, that rest is found in a relationship with God as a work of God. The second thing that makes the seventh day unique is that we're told, following the fact that he ended his work and he rested, that God then blessed and sanctified the seventh day. That's different from the other days of creation. The other days, God said that they were good, but in, in no way did he bless them and set them apart, sanctify. In the Hebrew, this word blessed, it's brach, which means to praise or to salute. As one commentator observed, blessed is a statement of goodwill, as well as the condition that fulfills 
those good words. A better translation of this phrase, God blessed, would be that God favored the seventh day. Understand, God favored this day and he sanctified it or set it apart from the others because it was on this day that God was finally able to cease from his work, but more importantly, that God was able to enjoy now not just all of creation, but the crescendo of creation, the purpose of creation, man, a relationship with humanity. Nothing more that God needed to do to enjoy that relationship. Now, while there is no mention here in Genesis 2 for man ceasing from his work, doesn't happen here on the seventh day. God rested, but there's not a mandate for man to rest. However, it does demand our consideration that in the next book of the Bible and the Levitical law, that establishing the Sabbath day and doing so, Moses points back to Genesis 2 as the justification or the basis for the Sabbath day. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, let me, let me read you what Moses wrote. He wrote, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, or, or sanctified it. What's interesting about this passage is Moses does something interesting, right? He, he connects the Sabbath day to the seventh day. And in doing so, placing the command for the children of Israel to cease from working on the Sabbath, What's happening is Moses is explaining that the Sabbath is holy, it's to be obeyed, but it has nothing to do with man's work and was instead designed to recognize the completion of God's. This is something that we get wrong in regards to the Sabbath day. We think the Sabbath day is about us, but instead the Sabbath day is about much, much more mainly the completion of God's work. To this point in Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17, the Lord spoke to Moses, and this is what he said, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall be surely put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath throughout their generations as a, note, perpetual covenant. It is a sign, the Sabbath, between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh, God rested. Now, realize the point of the Sabbath is twofold. First, is to serve as a constant reminder that it was only through God's work that humanity was originally afforded a relationship with God when on the seventh day. The second purpose of the Sabbath is that since our subsequent actions following the seventh day ruined this relationship with God, it could only be through a reinstitution of God's work that this relationship could find restoration. Think of it like this. In a very real way, the Sabbath, the Sabbath day was God's way of hammering it home to humanity, basically telling them, stop working. Stop trying to fix something that you can't fix. Only I can fix it. It's why any work on the Sabbath resulted in death. Like this understanding explains, and it's really interesting to me, it explains why Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he had the most difficult time, 
not with the sinners and the prostitutes and the down and outers, the outcasts. His biggest issue was always with the Pharisees, the religious establishment. And what was always the sticking point? The Sabbath day. John 5, verses 16 through 18, we're told for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Why? Because he had done things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, my father has been working until now. And I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath or their understanding of the Sabbath, but he had also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The big problem that Jesus had with the religious right was the fact they had twisted the Sabbath into representing something it in no way represented, which was what? That the Sabbath was a way that they could earn God's favor through obedience. When the reality was that the Sabbath had been instituted to emphasize the exact opposite reality. God's favor. This day of rest, this seventh day, doesn't come as a result of my work, but as a result of God's work. Not mine, but his. The Sabbath day, the seventh day, it's literally a day of grace. It's interesting is that this seventh day, or God's Sabbath, when God rested from his work. Do you know that this has only taken place, it has only occurred twice in human history. Obviously, God rested in this original seventh day recorded in Genesis 2. And yet, as a consequence of the fall, when man sinned, thereby separating himself from his creator, effectively ruining the seventh day of rest. What happened? God ended his rest and then busied himself with work. The work of what? The work of redemption. C.H. McIntosh observes the seventh day showed forth the completeness of creation work. But creation work is marred. And the seventh day rest interrupted. And thus, from the fall to the incarnation, God was working. From the incarnation to the cross, God the Son was working. And from Pentecost until now, God the Holy Spirit has been working. And yet, there is a second Sabbath in which God rested. How interesting is it that while the religious world there in Jerusalem ceased from working, desiring to earn God's favor through their obedience, it was on that same Sabbath day that Jesus rested in a garden tomb. Following what? The completion of his work on Calvary. And what was the intention of that work? It was so that man no longer had to try or attempt to earn God's favor, but now could be given it and find rest in him. You see, the seventh day, this seventh day, was originally blessed. It was sanctified, set apart by God. Why? Because of what it represented then, but would come to represent ultimately. The Sabbath day served as a reminder that the only way our relationship with God could be restored would not be through our best attempts, but rather through the completion of God's perfect work in Jesus. This kind of helps us understand, right, what, what Jesus meant maybe in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, when he said to the Pharisees, the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man, for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of our rest. Never forget, rest, as we initially introduced, 
It's only found, according to the seventh day, in a relationship with God. But the seventh day also tells us a relationship with God is only made possible through the completed work of God. Therefore, rest. Rest is not something that you can earn, achieve, or maintain, but is something that can only be yielded. How? Through a restored relationship with God through a work of Jesus, God's amazing grace. This morning, if you find yourself restless, restless, restlessness, tired, if that's you this morning, let's bring this home for a minute. Like the application here. If you're tired and need rest, well, there are two things you need to do. First, cease from your work. Remember, rest came after six days of God's work, not man's. Six days. You can go out and you can try to work to find rest, rest with God. And yet never will the seventh day follow your work. Never. Instead, it always, friend, follows God's. So cease working. And instead, let God work in you something that's complete and lasting and satisfying. Hebrews 4.4 and 9.10, we're told, For Jesus has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered Jesus' rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Please understand, if you're restless, restless, it can't, rest can never be found in, in your work. And what you do, you can't earn it, you can't maintain it, you can't develop, and so stop working and allow Jesus to work so that you can find his rest and what's next? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to a relationship with Jesus, which is what the seventh day was all about. A perfect, complete, open, intimate relationship with God. And it was in that, that this was the seventh day, that there was communion and rest and relaxation, that God's work was complete and we didn't have to work in the sense of earning God's favor. I, I hope that, that this brings it home when Jesus says in Matthew 11, where he promises, all you who labor, all you who are heavy laden, what does he say? Come to me and I will give you rest. Rest is in Jesus and it's something that he gives, not something we can earn. He says, my yoke upon you, take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden light, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Oh, the seventh day. We long for the seventh day, but we can have the seventh day in Jesus. Well, verse four, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now verse 4 opens. This is the history of, or literally, the generation of, which, for you note takers, marks an important transition in Moses' presentation of the creation narrative. 
it would seem that after providing kind of this larger story arc of creation, this narrative, in chapter 1, six days of his work, the seventh day of his rest, Moses now kind of transitions us back to the sixth day in order to fill in some of the details, which is not a crazy thing because this was a common storytelling technique. You're flowing, you've got the, the story rolling, you don't want to just stop and kind of go on a rabbit trail, so you finish it and then you go back and fill in the details. Now, thematically, you can divide the remaining portion of chapter two into two sections. One, you have as a theme, the creation of man and woman, and then the parameters of their enjoyment of this distinction, this, this distinction of male and female. Secondly, you then have the formation of their world and the parameters of their enjoyment therein. So within chapter two, you have God creating male and female and saying, this is how that should operate. And then you have God creating their world and saying, you can enjoy it. And this is how you're to do that. So these themes kind of weave their way through the rest of the chapter. Now, in order to effectively cover these critically important things, the things presented in this chapter, instead of kind of approaching our text in a pure verse-by-verse expose, we're going to look at these two themes over the course of the next two weeks. Now, there's a lot of ways you can approach chapter two. This is just the way that worked well for the logical nature in which my brain works. This morning... We're going to look at the creation of man and woman. Next week, we'll discuss the parameters of their enjoyment, as well as the formation of their world and the parameters in which they could enjoy that. Let's get into verse 7. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. For starters, please notice that we're given in these verses another name, a new name for God. Aside from Elohim, which was first introduced in Genesis 1-1 and then used through the, the rest of the creation account, now we're given this name, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is the personal name for God presented through Scripture. Now, some have claimed that these four Hebrew consonants Y-H-W-H, which we have translated capital L-O-R-D, can be pronounced Jehovah, with others claiming Yahweh. The reality is because the, the Hebrews wanted no one to utter the name of God, that they removed the vowels so you couldn't say it. As you were reading and you would get to this point, you would say, and the name formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils. You would never utter the name. They removed the vowels, left the consonants. We've got no idea how it's actually to be pronounced. No one knows. But regardless of pronunciation, this is the first mention of Lord. And what's fascinating about that is that it's used to set the stage for God's creation of man and woman, which I find to be significant because it speaks, this word, it speaks of God's covenantal nature. It's his personal name. It's used to kind of define whereas the rest of creation had a, an impersonal uh, Elohim. Now as he gets to man, he's going to get personally involved with this dealing. It's a fascinating reality that while it is that God had spoken all things, everything into existence, and then by speaking, by his word, he created order out of the chaos, forming things. We're told now that God doesn't speak man into existence, but we're told the Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth. And this is the first time that we're given this word formed. First time it's used. In the Hebrew, the word means to fashion or to frame. What's interesting is that there's 17 times that this word in the Old Testament can be translated as potter. Case in point is, is Jeremiah chapter 18, that God potted man. What makes this word of such importance is that what it does is it presents this personal Lord involving himself personally in the creation of man, which kind of presents this 
very intimate image of God forming Adam out of the dust of the earth. I hope you know it is not the substance of the material man that makes him unique to the rest of creation. As a matter of fact, the exact same 17 elements that you'll discover in the dust of the earth make up your physical bodies. Like it's been said that of the literal material value, you're worth about $3.20. Just go to Home Depot and get a bag of potting soil. That's about you. Like that's what you're made out of. So it's not your physical body that that creates this uniqueness. Instead, man's uniqueness flows from the, the specific involvement of this personal God forming man. How? Well, we're given the context for that in the previous chapter, into his image and likeness. And to accomplish this, in this section of Scripture, we're told God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man, Adam, it's the word in the Hebrew, became a living being. And, and this 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 phrase, a living being, is better translated a living soul. If you go back to what makes man unique from the rest of creation, not just that we have a body, plants and animals have physical body, not just that we have a spirit, while plants don't have a spirit, animals do, it provides them life. Humanity as a trichotomy in the image of the triune God is created also with a soul, thus will live forever. We have the capacity of consciousness, will, free choice. Verse 18, we're told, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And once again, we're we're skipping over a few things this morning. We'll get to those things next week. But our focus here thematically is God's creation of man and woman. And this sets the stage. Because God had created man in his image and likeness, the image and likeness of the triune God, the God that exists within perfect community, Adam was designed to be a relational being. Within his very existence was was the desire for community, human community and companionship. It was hardwired into his DNA. Now sure, Adam, at this moment, he's absolutely content with his relationship with God. It's not as though Adam was lacking something. And yet, God did recognize that there was a component within Adam, a need within Adam for human companionship that God couldn't satisfy. Timothy Keller rightly observed, the ache for friends is not the result of sin. Like we're created to be relational. We're not created to live life alone, one man versus the world. No, we need people to come alongside of us to provide companionship through the journey. Knowing this dynamic, while Adam was oblivious, God decided in his sovereign will and his knowledge to make a helper comparable to him. This phrase, helper comparable, can be translated in various translations as helpmate, companion. I like fit helper, co-responder. All of these will work. The idea being presented through the word is that God decided to create for man a human partner that would perfectly fit his relational, emotional, spiritual needs and vice versa. Now, before we continue, I do want to quickly head off a thought that arises in the skeptical mind. Maybe not your mind, but it does mine. And making the woman, was God correcting a flaw in his original design of man? Was it, was it in this moment that God was like, oops, my bad. Man, it was all good, and I just, bad line of code, right? No, 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 no. That, see, that's not what's being presented here. The reason that God made male and female genders 
separate from one another and not all at once was so that mankind, both male and female, would recognize, appreciate, and cherish the essential need for this important distinction. You might say that this was an intentional flaw for a very specific purpose, which then explains what follows. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. It's part of the dominion thing. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found by him a helper comparable to him. So if the context, I know what some of you are thinking, if the context, right, of the naming of the animals is that all of this occurred in the sixth day. How could Adam have possibly accomplished that task and only, at the most, a few hours? Now, obviously, it does help that we're told, even in our text, that God brought the animals to Adam, right? That's helpful. In addition, Adam has like an incredible IQ, perfect man, no sin, right? He's incredibly intelligent. It could be, and I read, I read one commentator that kind of presented an, an explanation that it wasn't all of the create creatures throughout the world, but mainly just the ones in the garden that, that Adam had already been placed in. And so it's just naming the animals that were in the Garden of Eden, possibly. It's not even beyond the realm of reality that Adam didn't name all of the animals but only like their general species, that he gave names to the species and not every particular animal. Truth, I ain't got the slightest idea how he would have named all of the animals, except for the fact that the text tells us he did and doesn't tell us uh, to read it any other way. So we'll just accept that. I got no problems with it. Instead, what is important, instead of how he named the animals, to remember why. God had given Adam this task. The purpose of the task was not to name the animals, but rather to reveal to Adam what? That there was not found a helper comparable to him in all of the animal kingdom. Remember, Adam's made, and he's like, this is awesome. God looks like dude needs a helper, right? Doesn't take too long, God hanging out with Adam to realize the dude needed a woman. You know what I mean? But God recognized the need before Adam was cognitively aware of it. So the next step is that God is going to create a dynamic to reveal the need to Adam. So he starts naming the animals. He's looking around, he's seeing that there's two by two, that there's male, there's female. He's kind of checking himself out. And he's like, man, I'm kind of, man, there's nothing for me. What's the deal with that, right? Like he had to come to the awareness, the understanding that there wasn't a helper. The purpose of the process was that while God knew Adam needed a helper, Adam was unaware until he had named the animals. Verse 21, now flowing from that, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And God took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Why? Because she's taken out of man. Literally, woman means taken out of man. Adam's name means dirt, and woman's name means taken out of man, which means that they're really good at stating the obvious. Now, right from, right from the beginning, I want to point out an interesting and important contrast immediately established in our text. In verse 19, we're told that out of the ground, the Lord God formed literally every living thing with one exception. Do you notice that God didn't create Eve, woman, out of the ground? Instead, we're told that God formed Eve from man. The woman is distinct here. 
from all of creation. Now, this is not new. Like, we've seen God create out of nothing all things. Unique word, create. Uniquely, we've seen God form man from the dust of the earth. Whole new word. But in regards to woman, we're given another first. That God, quote, made the woman. And this word made, it's totally different. It means that he built her. That he established her. Understand. God didn't take an actual rib out of Adam. Like there was this old wives' tale kind of folk legend within Christian circles that men have one less rib than women. Not true. Like, don't tell that to your kids because they're going to go to school and sound stupid. <laughs> it, it wasn't a rib. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word that's used here, rib, it's most often in Scripture translated as side or chamber. The idea is that God removed a side of the man. And it's from that side that he made, built, or established the female gender. Literally, to make the woman, God took out of man certain genetic traits, which is why when Adam wakes up, fascinating, right? When Adam wakes up, not only is he cognitively aware that something is missing from him that was there before he went to sleep, but it's upon the presentation of Eve, the woman, that Adam recognizes that whatever part it was of him that God took out, it was found in her. That the side of Adam no longer exists in man because it's found in woman. That God split the first man and made him into male and female. It's why he then declares, right? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She was taken out of me. So, what does the Bible say here about human genders? And to this, there's four points. First, Genders exist. Now, you know, let me back up for a moment. Um, I'm not speaking about this because of a bathroom controversy. I frankly don't care. Like, like this is not, and, and this is the beauty of what we do here at Calvary 316. Because you're not coming to Calvary 316 thinking, I knew it. I knew it. That pastor's going to get up there on a soapbox, talk about gender, because all this stuff in the news. You'd be really Southern. We are in Winder. Um, anyway, my point here is that we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The only reason I'm speaking to this topic is because God foreordained it for us to be looking at it. Trust me. Um, I don't like being called transphobic or bigoted or racist. Not something I like to just kind of invite and yet, I'm going to preach the truth regardless of what comes. And the reality is that the Bible teaches us that genders exist. It's sad that that point should go without saying, but I can't. It has to be stated. God made man male, and he made them female. He created them male and female. The Bible is crystal clear that God created the homo sapiens, as he did most other classifications of animals, male and female. Understand, masculinity and femininity exist. It's true. They do exist and are formed and developed and maintained often through societal nurturing. That's a truth. But they also exist as a result of our created biology. Award-winning psychologist, Diane Houtner, not a Christian, but she did concede this in a recent article. She said, quote, while we do socialize our boys and girls differently, the contribution of biology is not zero. It's, it's, it's God created male 
and female. The other point that we should make here, aside from the fact that genders exist, which seems simple enough, but we have to state it, we should also point out, before we get to maybe more issues of controversy, the reality that genders are of equal importance. Like the Bible is really clear that the genders are equal, male and female equal. Like directly following the creation of male and female. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 it records, look at it, turn there, just a page over, not going far, to the left. Genesis 1 verse 28 records that after making them male and female, what happens? God blessed them, plural, before giving them the exact same set of tasks. Now, it is true that sin marred God's created order, which resulted to a further defining of gender roles. The point here is that in their base, created, original nature, male and female, they were of equal standing and of equal value. C.H. McIntosh, once again, he writes, in all his dignity and in all his glory, she was entirely one. Adam did not rule over, but with Eve. He was Lord of the creation, and she was one with him. For those who'd seek to diminish the important position of women through some kind of twisted machismo, first, you're an idiot. But secondly, I would just kind of point you to a telling observation made by author Mark Twain. He said, what would men be without women? His answer, scarce, sir, mighty scarce. Women are critically important, equal in the eyes of God. But there's a third point. Genders exist, they're of equal importance, but thirdly, Genders are distinct from one another. And this distinction is found in two ways presented in our text. First, there is a positional distinction. Don't forget, God formed man from the dust of the earth, right? But he made woman out of man. God had a different way in creating each particular gender. And note this order was not an accident. Positionally, there seems to be a distinction between Adam and Eve as it pertained to moral responsibility. They're completely equal, of equal value, equal importance, but when it comes to moral responsibility, there seems initially here to be a distinction. Though Eve would sin before Adam, God would hold whom responsible? He would hold the man. It's why after making Eve, we're not told that God brought Adam to Eve, but instead God brought her to the man saying, you're responsible, bucko. Understand, because Adam was the firstborn of creation, sin nature was passed through and is passed through the man and not the woman. According to scripture, we all are condemned. And whom? In Adam. And this is set up so that we could all then be saved through the second man, Christ Jesus. And note, this distinction we're all benefiting from. You see, the only way that Jesus could be born sinless was to be born through the woman and not the man with God as his, as his father, that Jesus was sinless because he didn't get the sin nature through Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 49, Paul says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord of heaven. As was the dust of man, so also are those 
made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Why God decided to set it up as such, I don't know, but he did, and it's clear. So there is a positional distinction between male and female. Secondly, though, there is also a biological distinction. Because God removed a certain biological genetic part of the man in order to make the woman, while equally human, there are simply aspects of the biological makeup of male and female that are intrinsically different from one another. Once again, kind of one of those things should go without saying. You look at the man, you look at the woman, there's some biological difference. But biblically speaking, it even goes beyond just the physical. I don't know if you saw the reports, but a study was recently conducted that showed for the first time that the brains of men and women are wired differently. Like many of the connections in the typical male brain, they run between the front and the back on one side of the brain. Whereas in women, the connections as they're mapped, they run from the right to the left, from the left to the right across both hemispheres. Now commenting on this study, professor of radiology at the University of Pennsylvania, Regina Verma, she said these maps show a stark difference in the architecture of the human brain that helps to provide a neutral basis as to why men excel at certain tasks and women at others. What we've identified is that there are connections in the brain that are hardwired differently in men and women. Functional tests have shown that when they carry out certain tasks, men and women engage different parts of the brain. Neurologist Ruben Gur, PhD, observed that these studies reveal that, quote, women are faster and more accurate at identifying emotions. That, that women are more of an emotional creature and men more stoic. Furthermore, the reality that the sections of the brain used to control aggression and anger responses are larger in women than men, which is why women can kind of keep their emotions at bay and anger under control, which is why men fly off at the handle. The part of the brain that controls that's bigger in women than men. It's biology. There is a basic difference. Now, I love this. Ruben Gur, not a Christian, but concerning these observable differences between the male and female brain, this is his conclusion. That's, that, that, that since, quote, most of these differences are complementary, they increase the chances of males and females joining together. It helps the whole species. Right? It's like good grief, bitches, read Genesis 2. That God made male and female, and he made them in such a way that they fit, not just biologically, but relationally, emotionally, that there's something unique at work, which leads to our fourth and final point, that there is a purpose in these gender distinctions. Like, understand, God created humanity, male and female, so that each gender would fill a unique genetic role essential to the formation of human companionship. Now, not all companionship, but a very important companionship. Now, don't forget the purpose in taking from Adam, Eve, from man, the woman. Why did God do that? It was to create a dynamic whereby true human companionship could be found and enjoyed by both the man and the woman, specifically in the other gender. As God exists in a diversity of distinct roles, existing in perfect harmony and equality, right? This picture in God, in his image and likeness, we were created, male and female, we were created. You have God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're one, but they're separate. They're equal, but they're distinct. 
Each has a role, and that role plays an essential part, and it's appreciated that there's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you never have the Spirit jealous of, of the fact that, that Jesus got to come as a man. Look at me, I'm just a spirit, right? And you don't have God the Father be like, why can't I take a turn being this? No, 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 no. There's perfect harmony and equality and diversity within God. And thus he did the same within man. Which is why to reject these things is, is an affront to God himself. In a very literal sense, God has designed the functional man to be incomplete. Part of him is missing. <laughs> Ladies, have you ever remember back to the courting days? And there was that guy. Okay, be honest, you married him out of pity. But but I guarantee you at some point this is this is what went through your mind. You're looking at him, you get to know him. Like you're ready to like give your life and commit to this. And you're like, gosh, he ain't all there. Right? Have you thought that? Like in a very practical sense, you're like, man, that dude is not all there. Something is missing. Duh, you. Which is why he desperately needs you for completeness. You see, the functional man would be incomplete without the woman. But on the flip side to it, the functional woman would also be incomplete without the man. I know I quote him a lot, but C.H. McIntosh, he said this, I love it. He said, no other creature so near to Adam as Eve. Why? Because no other creature was part of himself. Like I would say the, that the exact same reality existed for Eve as well. And it's with all of these things in mind that next Sunday, we're going to explore the God-given parameters as to how humanity was to enjoy this incredible distinction. God indeed made them male and female for the purposes of companionship, but he then determined that the ultimate joining together of the genders occur with commitment and safety and tenderness in him, marriage. Marriage.